Good morning. Turn with me in the scriptures to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. This is the word of God. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their transgressions unto them, and hath committed unto us the ministry, the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ did, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of Christ in him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I have to say that I had a, a much harder time than usual preparing this sermon. Now, the reasons for this were numerous, and a lot of them don't concern you, but some of them do. The passage, in terms of its content, is simply gigantic. The sheer number of theological themes, the depth of each of them, and the almost random interplay, interconnectedness of them all in this context, are overwhelming weight of these ideas it was enough to keep us occupied for months, and I got about a half an hour to work with. You can't put 100 pounds of concrete into a 10-pound bag. And uh, I, I don't know what it's like for you to read Scripture. I would assume it's something like what it's like for me to read Scripture. And I remember, I remember when I was a little boy, there were these cans that you could buy in certain stores that my daddy told me not to go to. It would look like a can of peanuts. And when you'd unscrew the top of that can of peanuts, this snake, this springy snake would come flying out. And this was supposed to be funny on some primitive sense of humor. That's what happens when you open the scriptures. Ideas come flying out in no particular order. And when you've got to stand here, you've got to herd these cats. You, you have to put, you know, impose some kind of order and organization on them and present them in a way that, that, that they can be understood. And this passage is particularly difficult because of the sheer weight of the theological cargo in the passage and the fact that this is one of these places where the Apostle Paul gets a little scrambled for a minute. He gets so excited about all of the themes that are bouncing off the inside of his head, that he doesn't sweat outlines. And you have to really wrestle with the structure because there isn't one. And it's hard to organize. So why did I choose, given that I got one more sermon, I'm not going to go into a series. I only got one sermon. So why did I choose a passage like this? Well, the answer is simple. Last week, I opened up Isaiah 52.7, to spread before you the glories of the preaching ordinance. And I used a phrase you might not have heard before. 
the diplomacy of heaven. I wanted to honor my friend Brian, and I wanted to make his ministry more useful among you by conveying a sense of the majesty of the ministerial call, and preaching in particular. I wanted to exhort you to hold this office dear and to treasure the graces that God conveys to you by this means. Well, I wanted to continue that, that emphasis. And I selected this passage because of its teaching on the ministry of reconciliation, preaching as the embassy of heaven. The problem I had in preparation is that it's impossible to disentangle that idea from the content of the message it carries, and that's, that's deliberate on Paul's part. And the result is that I find myself majestically mired in the weight of the glory of the gospel. My primary burden is actually the secondary burden of the text. What I want to talk about is not the main idea of the text. Paul's describing the nature of conversion. He's describing union with Christ. He's describing the atonement and the advance of the kingdom of God. In passing... He's describing the role of preaching and bringing all this about. My main focus this morning is Paul's parenthesis. So I admit from the beginning that I'm not attempting to expound the central message of the text. What I have for you this morning is in the context of these verses a mere tidbit. But it's a Pauline tidbit, not to be mistaken for a triviality. He begins here... By talking about a new world, the world in Christ. If any man be in Christ. Paul describes the life that a man has when he has been mystically united to Christ. The prepositional phrase in Christ, with all its variations, permeates Paul's writings like a plague of gnats. It's everywhere. Just the phrase in Christ... Not all the other variations on it, just that one, occurs over 200 times in the Pauline writings. You think it's important to him? 200 times. The result produced by the events of conversion is that the believer becomes one with his God. That's what happens to us when we, when we become Christians. We become one with our God. Now, there's going to be results to that, but don't, cons don't confuse the results with the event. Yeah, our behavior is going to change. Yeah, the way we think is going to change. We're going to have some new opinions, but that's not the meat of what happens in conversion. The meat of what happens in conversion is we become one with God. We become what Paul here calls kinosthesis, new creation. The word new here, there are about three different Greek words for new. This one is a specialized term. It doesn't mean recent. It's a term of contrast. A contrasting, a difference from what went before. Radical change is in view. But the really fascinating word here is the word creation. It sounds at first like Paul is saying that the new Christian is going to think and behave differently. And that's true as far as it goes. But that's not what's really going on here. The believer instead has been swept up 
into an eschatological event. Okay, what does eschatological event mean? Eschatology has to do with the study of last things. Eschatology has to do with the idea that the world is going someplace, not just round and round around the sun. It has a goal. Our lives have a goal. History has a goal. Creation has a goal. Existence is going somewhere. And what happens to a man when he's converted is that he's taken off this spinning ball of the earth that just goes round and round and goes nowhere. And he's brought up into a life, one with his creator, and his life has a goal. His life has a direction. The eschaton, the consummation of all things, has penetrated space-time. God has, has caused his eternal world to burst into space-time. And the converted man has become a part of that, well, invasion. One way you can look at this is in militaristic terms. I will never forget a sermon I heard in 1986. I know it was 1986 because it was the day after Reagan bombed Libya back to the Stone Age. And uh, we were all caught up in that event, and we all thought, you know, are, are we going to war? What's going to happen? In the event, it actually just fizzled into nothing, but it was a big day. And I was in seminary at the time, and my friend Bob White was going to be preaching in homiletics lab. And he apparently prepared his sermon with the news in front of him, and he was preaching from Luke 2 on the arrival of the angels and their revelation to the shepherds of what had happened. And he paralleled those angels with the F-111s that had just bombed Libya the day before. He painted me a picture of rank on rank, the six-winged hosts of heaven coming down in their formations as an invading force. Not the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, the United Heavenly Marines were coming down out of the sky. And they had come to lay siege to a rebellious earth and to conquer it and to return it to its rightful owner. And that was the imagery that Bob used, Bob White used, to describe the arrival of Christ. Militaristic. God's here. And Paul's point is that God has invaded space-time. That's one aspect of that invasion, those angels coming down. And he's brought with him an entirely new kind of existence. New ways of thinking, new desires, new acting, new being, new standards, new motivations, new relationships, new needs. Yes, in the Lord's Prayer, God assigns you your needs. New aspirations, new appetites, new everything. And the old fallen ways, those old ways of doing business, they don't make any sense anymore. They're not appropriate anymore. We don't fit into those files anymore. We're blended into this new world by our union with Christ. We represent God's invading force, retaking God's world. So look at your conversion in militaristic terms. You've heard that we're members of the church militant. 
You've heard that we participate daily in spiritual warfare. You've heard that we have enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Go back and read the Psalms. And you notice that anybody with any character, anybody with any real spiritual depth, it's almost a proof of orthodoxy. Anybody worth anything has got enemies. Why do you suppose that is? We've got enemies because we live and speak the offense of the gospel. We say something extremely insulting about what it is to be human. And then we say something so gloriously unfulfillable, unspeakable of what it, what it is to be a converted human that people decry us for our arrogance. What do you mean you become one with God? What do you mean that absolute righteousness forsook heaven in human form and took the punishment for your sins? My sins aren't that serious to need that kind of punishment, are they? Surely it doesn't take that much to make me right with God. I'm a nice guy and God's cool. And the gospel bursts those boundaries shatters those categories, and lays the fallen man in his face. It is the most humiliating message ever delivered among human beings. It better offend. And you better have enemies. Militaristic terms. And out of that, having met the prerequisite for it, Paul talks about reconciliation. And this is where I want to camp out today. You see, reconciliation has a prerequisite. What's the prerequisite for reconciliation? Enmity. You got to have a problem to solve. Reconciliation is composing differences between enemies. And if you don't have enmity, you can't have reconciliation. Again, we have to remember what the problem is that the gospel solves. We have to solve the right problem. If we keep applying the gospel to the problem of not, in, not getting along too well in life or not having enough money or uh, not being as happy as we want to be, well, that's like using a, a hammer to drive screws. That's not going to work. It's the wrong tool for that job. The only problem the gospel can solve is the cataclysmic disaster of sinful man before a holy God. That's the problem it's designed to solve. And in verse 18, Paul talks about this union with Christ in terms of reconciliation. He's clear that this is not a human work. He says, all things are of God. All things come from God. And in this case, he's not talking about the, heaven, the creation of the heaven of the earth. He's, he's talking about all of the aspects of this reconciling work. All the things that are done to save us and bring us back to God, those all come from God. They are not a human work. All things are of God. It is God who has reconciled us to himself by means of the work of Jesus Christ. Absolutely vital that you get this. This is not, repeat, not. I say again, not the work of men. Have I been clear? Did I stutter? But now, to proclaim the work, God has done something crazy. He has commissioned men. 
seraphim were available. They were passed over. He could have written it with his own finger. There's precedent for that. He did that with the Ten Commandments. No stone tablets today. Paul says, and God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, who's us? The immediate context here, the immediate reference is the apostles. But I don't think we're stretching the text to say that what's going on here is that God has created an office whose purpose is to proclaim and apply the ministry of reconciliation to God's people. He has given us the ordinance of preaching. And you've got in this, in this structure a work of God proclaimed by men. Throughout the rest of the passage, Paul seems to alternate between telling us what God has done and telling us what He, and therefore us, we have been commissioned to proclaim. We go back to God's work in verse 18. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ. Reconciliation has this prerequisite of enmity on our part. We're the ones who declared war. God did not declare war on us. We did. Our declaration of war. God's work in Christ overcomes what we have done in Adam and what we have done in our own sin. In Christ's atoning work, God has set aside His own wrath. In applying that work to us, He renews us so that we set aside our hostility. See the difference here. God's wrath, our hostility. The difference is important. Wrath is God's righteous response to sin. There's something wrong with a God who claims to be good, who does not deal decisively and severely with the wickedness that is human sin. It must be handled. It must be addressed. God is not a winking grandfather. God does not invite everybody home for ice cream just because he's senile. Sin has to be dealt with. And the unchanging, the immutable character of God must always face sin with judicial wrath. This is not a temper tantrum. This is the wages of sin. And anybody who's ever gotten to Friday and looked in the bank account and nothing was there, knows about the injustice of withholding wages. Judicial wrath is what is due to sin. It must, must, must be imposed. And because that's the case, man, in and of himself, apart from the grace of Christ, is innately, natively hostile to God. He is hostile to everything that is good until he is renewed by the work of reconciliation. God doesn't change. He changes us. And then in his immutable character, he continues to treat us the way our new condition requires that we be treated. Our new condition being united to Christ, our new condition with our sins removed and punished in Him, our new condition with His righteousness given to us, 
He has created a situation. I can't wrap my brain around this. He has considered, con, con created a situation where sinners deserve kindness from God. We, de, we deserve it with a borrowed deserving. Christ deserved it for us and gave it to us. Now, this has to be proclaimed. So Paul talks about man's proclamation. God has given us, those of us who preach, the ministry of reconciliation. The work of Christ accomplishes all this in full. Paul speaks of a ministry given to men. What happens in this pulpit has been commissioned by God. Men, men, this is a crazy idea. Men have been entrusted with the message which is not mere information. It is actually part of the transforming work of the Spirit. I have often prayed from this and other pulpits. Oh, Lord God, in your mercy, please deliver us from education. By which I mean what? What does that mean? Oh, Lord God, by your mercy, please deliver us from education. I happen to like education. I have a little of it. And I I think education is a good thing, but not here. What happens here is not that we know some data that we didn't know an hour ago. What happens here is that life comes from God. By the incongruous means of a human tongue. And you thought the Red Sea was a miracle. Faithful preaching literally speaks life into the spiritually dead. Do you think for a minute that I can do that? Something supernatural happens behind this desk. Faithful preaching creates life. Reconciliation is actually resurrection. The parallel to Genesis 1 is exact. Just as God brought the universe out of absolutely nothing by the word of His power, now He brings life out of death by speaking to those who are dead to all spiritual good, who are utterly indisposed, unable because unwilling to respond in any way. And the life-giving word itself conveys the ability to respond where it did not exist. If you are moved by what I'm saying up here, it's not because I'm some eloquent, brilliant preacher. It's because the Holy Spirit of God took the deficient, sinful words of a deficient, weak, feeble, sinful man and created life in you. Do you see why the preaching ordinance is to be so precious? You see why you should treasure and value this? You three men in this room who are preparing for ministry, do you not understand the sober and miraculous task for which you are setting yourselves up? The thing you're getting ready for? Terrible things happen here.
scary things happen here. Serious things happen here. Beautiful things happen here. And a holy God has reached down His finger from heaven and has picked a spectacularly inappropriate tool to accomplish these mighty and terrible things. He's looked at somebody like me or Brian or Robbie or Parker or Eddie and he said, give me that one. That's what I'm going to use. That's how I'm going to prove that it's me and not you that does this work. Resurrection done by a finite fallen man. And this ministry, this ministry in the new world created by God's invasion of space-time, continues as the food of the soul for the new man. If you are indeed this new creation, what's going on here is not a lecture in a college course. What's going on here is the food of your soul. It is the nourishment that keeps your spirit alive. You are intended to feed on this. And it's not a buffet. You've got to eat it all. This is intended to keep you alive and strengthen you and fit you for your cruise. No, for battle. Because you are at war. You are part of the invasion of space-time by the eternal kingdom of God. What does what Paul say in Romans 16? And, the, and the, Lord of, the Lord God will soon trample Satan under your feet. Because your union with Christ means it is, it is your foot as much as Christ's foot that is bruised by the serpent and crushes his head. Two sides of the coin. In verse 19, Paul provides two arguments to show God's reconciling activity. First of all, we hear about God's work. 19, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their transgressions unto them. The difficult part is not to spend the next six hours proclaiming the glory of imputation and non-imputation and the transfer of sin and righteousness. I gotta go, oh, I gotta leave that behind and go on to something else. It's a magnificent truth. It's been taught from this pulpit, but it's never been exhausted and never will be. I gotta go to the other side. Man's proclamation has committed unto us the word of reconciliation, the life giving word that applies an accomplished historical fact with theological freight in it, brings it and injects it like a vaccine, like a life-giving drug into the bloodstream of your soul. That's what preaching is for. Finally, in verse 20, Paul gives a name to what he and all preachers have been called to do. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. I learned a Greek word in the preparation of this sermon. The word for ambassador is kin... It's almost exactly the same word as the word Presbyterian. It's a variation on our word for an elder. 
It signifies a man who is mature and experienced. We don't put a 16-year-old kid in a pulpit unless he's Charles Spurgeon. Okay, and there ain't many of those. Okay. Somebody who's mature. That doesn't mean he's got to be old. It means he's got to be mature. You know the difference. Uh, my mother told me about, about teaching. There are some teachers who have 25 years of experience. There are other teachers who have the same year of experience repeated 25 times. It's somebody who has grown and matured through experience. No matter how many or how, many few, how few miles per gallon he's gotten out of his life, he's attained something. In the ancient world, they use this word the same way we do. A man commissioned by the king to speak to the king of other nations, to represent the interests, the interests and the policies of the king, not his own. He represents the king in affairs of state. In wartime especially, especially at the end of war, the ambassador would present the terms of surrender to a conquered enemy. And as much as it doesn't look like we're a conquering army, we are. And what happens up here is that I stand with the foot of Christ on the neck of a conquered Satan. And I tell his former servants, here are the terms of your surrender. Sign here. I'm not here to negotiate. This is what God has said. Jesus has by his incarnation invaded rebellious territory. His resurrection defeats our insurrection. In the preaching ministry, he sent a diplomatic corps into his conquered domain proclaiming amnesty and peace for all who will receive it. The war is over. Lay down your arms. And Paul describes this function as God's work through men. As though God did beseech you. What a word. As though God did beseech you through us. We pray you in Christ's stead, in place of Christ, be ye reconciled to God. He's putting the voice of God into his own mouth. He's putting the voice of God into the mouth of those of us who must represent God. What a horrible, magnificent responsibility is on the shoulders of somebody who stands up here. The voice of God comes out of our mouth. How can that be? That doesn't make any sense. That's what it says. That insofar as we are faithful to the text of Holy Scripture, that's what's happening. And how does God speak? As if God, God who commands the stars to leap into blazing glory out of absolutely nothing, that voice, those words, would use the tongues of sinful men to beg you for your lives. To beg you for your lives. The substitution of the face of God. The putting of God's words on a human tongue is appropriate only in so much as it reflects the substitution of Christ for us on the cross. 
we go back to verse 21. We return to this theme of man's proclamation to the theme of God's saving work. God's work in verse 21, for he hath made him. This is the most, one of the most overwhelming verses in all of Scripture. He, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin. Why? For us. Who knew no sin. Gentle reminder, look who, look who we're talking about here. The one who's becoming sin is the one who knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Think of it. Absolute perfection. Eternal purity. Unchangeable holiness. That before whom the heaven of heavens is not clean in His sight. This is the God who becomes man. Why? To what end? Specifically, so that he can become the target of his own judicial wrath. So that the judgment due to us could be passed upon him. Remember Pilate. Remember Herod. Remember those kangaroo courts they dragged him in front of. Which unintentionally vindicated the righteousness of God. By inflicting the curse of God's wrath on a man who was God. If you're not blown away, you're not listening. All this happened so that Satan himself would tear out his own heart with his own teeth. All to what end? That we might become the righteousness of God. Now we often talk about imputation, the imputation of Christ's righteousness. That is a rich Pauline theme. But here, Paul preaches the doctrine of imputation more profoundly than elsewhere. Not in terms merely of a legal declaration on a piece of paper in a file cabinet somewhere, but in terms of a new creation. If you will, in ontological terms. In terms not of what is said about us, but in terms of what we are. In terms of a new creation. A passing away of everything that we were in our sin and rebellion and hatred of God. Emerging reborn, purified, cleansed, radiant in a gifted purity. A righteousness not our own. Yet somehow, He makes the robe fit flawlessly. That such an embassy would be entrusted to a sinner. Through all of this, the work of God is presented as complete. No more need be done. The diplomacy of heaven here is the preaching of men. Think about that. The diplomacy of heaven is represented as the preaching of men. It's, in, in, it's part of the means by which this completed work is applied to the elect. Preaching, therefore, is the means by which the, the finished work is made effectual in the lives of particular, particular individuals. In the language of theology, preaching is a means of grace. 
God is gracious to us, and he uses means to bring that grace down to us. Preaching takes the word of God, the reading of which is also a means of grace, and prayer, which is a means of grace, and this table, which is a means of grace, and expounds it into the power of the Spirit, awakening our love of who God is and what God has done, and sustaining our spirit with the rich food of God's revelation. One might call it a delivery system for the for the uh, blessings of God's grace and favor and love. That's what it is. It's a delivery system for everything that God has for us. Now, I hope you can see why I pursued this theme in the context of thanking God for Brian's ministry among, the, among us. The ministry of preaching, this, this means of grace, this con- converting ordinance, is one of the most precious gifts that God has ever given not just to the church, but to the world. By this means, the infinite holy God uses the words of finite fallen men to do the unthinkable, to put down the rage and hostility of human rebellion, to give life to hearts that are dead in trespasses and sins, to give light to minds blinded by the God of this world, to call lost and wandering orphans home to a family that loves them, to calm the storms of rage and hate in the souls of fleeing prodigals, to snatch men and women and children from the road to hell, and to prepare a table before them in the presence of their enemies. For surely, goodness and mercy will follow them all the days of their lives, and they will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for this converting ordinance. We thank you for the precious glory of preaching. And I confess that I am totally unworthy to do it, unable to do it. I pray for the power of your spirit on the hearts and consciences of your people as they come week by week to hear what flaming tongues of angels were not chosen to convey. To hear the words of resurrection, reconciliation, the words that open our minds to the character of the one we worship. I pray that you would possess the spirits of these people to love you, to glorify you, to honor you, to adore you, and to fall to fall in worship before what you have provided by this humble, unexpected means. In Jesus' name, amen.